listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a bi-weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. Well, listeners, this is our final week with the dragons. For now, anyway. As much as we all love dragons, we have to be fair to the other monsters. Still, I am rather pleased that we're ending this series in August. Because as some of you who do art may be aware, August has become an unofficial month for drawing dragons, and you can find a lot of dragon art at this time of year under the hashtag Smogist. So if you want to join in on the fun, but you aren't sure what subject to base your work on, let me introduce and reintroduce you to some criminally underrated dragons, including a rainbow-spotting dragon of the Inca Empire, the Mo'o of Hawaiian mythology, the Piasaw, and my dragon nominees of the year, the Underwater Panther and the Horned Serpent. Let's start in South America with the Amaru. The Amaru is a two-headed dragon with the body of a serpent, the feet and wings of a bird, and heads that are depicted as puma-like, bird-like, or llama-like, depending on the artist. The Amaru lives underground, in mountains, caves, and subterranean rivers. It would be enough to be a large reptile with two heads, but according to the Inca, the Amaru was also magical capable of crossing the boundaries between our world and the subterranean spirit world, and thus the appearance of an Amaru above ground was taken as a sign of something big to come. Sometimes, luckily, this big thing was just the coming of the rains. But occasionally in mythology, you have stories of the Amaru fighting gods. But that's not even the most spectacular thing about them. No, the most spectacular thing about the Amaru is its association with... rainbows. Incas believed that on occasion, an Amaru would stick one of its heads out of its subterranean lair, and sometimes the spot it would rise out of happened to be a spring. When this happened, the Amaru head in the spring would drink the water around it and spray the water around in great bursts. And maybe there was a reason for that, and maybe just because it's fun to spray water. The Amaru's other head, presumably thirsty, would find another spring to rise out of, and suck the water the first head was spraying around towards itself. The arch we see in the sky is the spray passing between the Amaru's two mouths. So next time you see a rainbow, before you go rushing off to find a pot of gold, stop to consider that the end of the rainbow might lead to something else instead. And if you're like me, maybe that'll just make you try to reach the end faster. Next we're going to visit a creature that doesn't look quite how it used to, and doesn't live quite where it should be. On a bluff in Alton, Illinois, in the United States, sits a dragon known as the Piasaw. The Piasaw nowadays is a golden-scaled dragon with the face and beard of a human, the antlers of a deer, and upward-pointing tusks and sharp teeth not dissimilar to an orc. Its head is a lot to take in, but once you have, as your eyes move down the creature's body, you'll notice the talons of an eagle, red and white bat wings, and a tail so long it arches over its back and wraps down between its legs again. 
so long you almost miss the whale-like fluke at the end of it. This is a modern-day recreation of an ancient mural first painted by the Mississippian people of Cahokia, possibly before 12,000 CE, but definitely before contact with the Europeans. The city of Cahokia was at its largest around 12,000 CE, with 20,000 to 30,000 residents. It was the largest prehistoric city north of Mexico, and there's some speculation that the Piasa may have been painted as a warning sign to strangers traveling down the Mississippi River that they were entering Cahokian territory. The first European account we have of the original mural, which existed on limestone cliffs several hundred yards from where the mural is now, is by Father Jacques Marquette in 1673, who stumbled upon the painting while exploring the surrounding area. His account is as follows. While skirting some rocks, which by their height and length inspire awe, we saw upon one of them two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid. They are as large as a calf. They have horns on their heads like those of a deer, and a horrible look. Red eyes, a beard like a tiger's, a face somewhat like a man's, a body covered with scales, and so long a tail that it winds all around the body, passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. Green, red, and black are the three colors composing the picture. What's interesting is that this account makes no mention of wings, nor is gold mentioned as a color composing the picture. This, unfortunately, is most of what I can definitively tell you about the Piasa. You may have heard that Piasa translates to bird who devours men. Maybe you've even heard a story about a chieftain who uses himself as bait to lure the monster out of its lair on the cliffs so his warriors can kill the dragon with poison arrows. These are very interesting tidbits, and they make for a good story, but unfortunately, they are probably lies. Most of the flavor text about the Piasa that's referenced nowadays was first written by a man named John Russell in an article published in 1836, entitled Tradition of the Piasa. In this article, Russell goes into detail about how he scales the bluffs where the mural traditionally was, only to encounter caves full of human remains, and he recounts a local legend about a brave chieftain who once did battle with a Piasa to stop the dragon bird from devouring his people. In 1887, however, when asked about where he first heard the legend of the chieftain by author W. McAdams, Russell admitted the story was fabricated. It's not a stretch to assume, therefore, that the bird description and resultant wings, and translation of the Piasa's name, are probably also the additions of a man looking to tell a story. Interestingly, the second Piasa described in Jacques' account in 1673 seems to have vanished sometime before Russell's account. Luckily, if you really want authentic North American dragon stories, you don't have to look too far. It may sound like an oversimplification, but I mean it with sincerity when I say, I really think both the underwater panther and the horned serpent should be considered dragons, or at least dragon adjacent. Let's start with the horned serpent. The horned serpent we've touched on a little before, and it can primarily be found in the mythologies of the Native American cultures of the southeastern woodlands and the Great Lakes. 
The reasons I think the Horned Serpent deserved to be called a dragon are... 1. It has a breath weapon, slash, natural curse ability. In Cherokee mythology, even breathing the tiniest bit of air expelled by a Horned Serpent could kill you, and even looking at it could result in the death of a person's family. The poison breath weapon is pretty common in European dragons, too. Especially serpent-type dragons. 2. Like the dragon bones used in East Asian medicine, the horns and crystal of the horned serpent have magical properties. In Muskoji mythology, a horned serpent's horns could be used in medicine. All horned serpents also have a large crystal in their foreheads, and these, along with their iridescent scales, had the powers of divination for this tribe, and the power to work miracles in Cherokee mythology. 3. In many traditions, the serpents have power over thunder, lightning, and water, which may sound familiar from last episode. And finally, 4. Like many dragons, the horned serpent is ambivalent toward humans, sometimes helping, sometimes not. In Muskoji mythology, the serpent is portrayed as firmly chaotic neutral, avoiding harming humans unless provoked. In Cherokee mythology, however, the horned serpent is more neutral evil, volatile and dangerous, so much so that the mythology mentions how to kill one, by shooting an arrow into the seventh spot from its head, where its heart was thought to be. Regardless of the culture, though, the thing that makes a horned serpent a valid candidate for dragonhood is that wherever the horned serpent is found, it is a being of great power that garners respect and fear. And while the ambivalence of the horned serpent garners respect and fear, the malevolence of the underwater panther demands it. Also named the Mishi Pishu in Ojibwe, this creature belongs to the mythology of the Anishinaabeg tribes of the Great Lakes region of Canada and the United States. I'm honestly surprised it's not yet classified as a dragon, because the Mishi Pishu satisfies pretty much all the requirements for a dragon. For one, it has a specific lair. The underwater panther, or sometimes panthers, are believed to live on Mishipikotan Island in Lake Superior. Two, Mishi Pishu is built like a dragon. Most accounts describe the creature as an amalgamation of other animals, with the body of a cougar or lynx, the horns of a bison, a coat of scales with occasional feathers, and a line of sawtooth spines that run along its back, ending all in a long prehensile tail. In conjunction with this very dragon-like appearance, the Mishi Pishu also has a horde. While it was possible to placate the underwater panther to allow safe passage across Lake Superior, woe to the person who found any copper in the surrounding area. Many North American tribes mined copper, because it's an incredibly useful metal that conducts heat well. But in the tribes of the Great Lakes region, mining copper anywhere near the lakes was extremely taboo, because it was thought to belong to the underwater panther. It was especially taboo to mine copper from Mishipikotan Island, as this was seen as the equivalent of breaking into Mishipishu's house to steal its stuff. There is a popular account from a 17th century Jesuit missionary named Claude de Blon about four Ojibwe tribespeople who embarked on a journey to the home of Mishipishu. When they arrived at the island, they found copper, 
and it was so plentiful that they decided to take just a little copper back to their village. The second their canoe pushed off the water, though, the voice of the Mishipishu surrounded them. He came growling after them, accusing the four of stealing the playthings of his children. Three of the four died on the boat ride back to the village, the final man surviving just long enough to tell the tale of what had happened. If that doesn't convince you, though, my final reason is, like many dragons, the Mishipishu has a natural enemy. Like the horned serpent, the subterranean underwater panther lives in opposition to the heavens-based thunderbird, and their respective powers are seen as the perfect foil, bringing balance to the world around them. No light without dark. Up until the 1950s, the Potawatomi performed a yearly ceremony to placate the underwater panther and maintain balance with the Thunderbird. Our last dragon is one that I really wish I knew more about. Until I started researching for this episode, I didn't even know they existed. The Mo'o is an aquatic dragon deity native to Hawaiian mythology. And it's somewhat hard to describe their place in it. Like many figures in Hawaiian mythology, they are divine, but their divine nature does not mean they are necessarily good. They can be love interests. They can be man-eaters. They guard freshwater pools and family lines, and like the Long of East Asia, the Mo'o are fond of shape-shifting, appearing as beautiful maidens or 12 to 30 foot long, black, lizard-like dragons. In most cases, the Mo'o are a tit-for-tat deity. If you honor their source of water, and the dragon itself, the Mo'o in return will ensure clear, clean water, good fortune, and plentiful catches of fish. Cross them, and they will cross you. There are a few stories of male Mo'o, such as Kapule, a Mo'o who pledged to watch over the island of Molokai, and whose stone form can be seen lying across the Kamalo Ridge. Most of the Mo'o are described as female, though, the most powerful being a Mo'o named Kiawahine, who traveled throughout the islands but could frequently be found residing in the fish pond at the royal compound of Moko Uluau in Lahani. And this connection to royal lineage, and family lineage in general, is one of the Mo'o's most important functions in mythology aside from guarding sources of fresh water. Much like how the Mo'o could take the shape of a human, in death some humans could become a Mo'o through a sacred transformation process. This newly risen Mo'o could then be petitioned on the family's behalf by the intercession of other deceased family members. In fact, Kiawahine herself was born in the 16th century as Princess Kalaahina, the daughter of the great Maui chief Ilani. Only after her death did she become a Mo'o. What's unusual about the Mo'o as a mythological creature at all, though, is that originally the Hawaiian islands were only home to one native lizard species, the copper-striped blue-tailed skink. And as far as myth material goes, they were very cute, but not exactly awe-inspiring. They certainly didn't look like dragons, so in the absence of real-life source materials such as crocodiles, the richness of the mythology surrounding these reptilian water deities is unique. 
and somewhat unusual. Part of the reason the Mo'o are difficult to research, and that I don't have more to tell you, is that in 1819, the Kapu religious system was officially overthrown. Moko Ula surrendered its role as the seat of Hawaii's royalty, and Kiwahine's fish pond was buried. Much of Hawaii's native religious practices were buried with it, and it's thanks to the efforts of scholars like Marie Alohalani Brown that the stories survive today and continue to be told. That's it for now for our episodes about dragons. After all the dragons we've covered these past few episodes, what I'm struck most by is humanity's love of the idea of a creature that's just a little more animalistic than us, but also so much like us. Creatures that are greedy, savage, but also sometimes divine, who sometimes just want to sleep or drink a bunch of milk. The dragon is humanity's worst flaws and saving graces given form. And that's why we love to hear about them so much. About how a human overcame a dragon, or how a dragon gave us all a gift. The dragon is the spiritual ancestor of all the monsters at humanity's fire. And for this, and so many more reasons, they will always hold a special place in my heart. Thank you for allowing me to share them with you. Intro and outro music were done by Amaru lookalike Scott Ethington. Find more rainbow spouting tunes at Bazooka Raccoon on SoundCloud.com. Special thanks this week to Philip Wellhauser and Paige, our newest patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to join them, find us under Monsters Advocate on Patreon. More support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. And I am so grateful for the support I get from listeners like you that make this show possible. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster. <laughs>